Dotnet Rocks episode 667 with guest Michelle LaRue Bustamante. Recorded live Thursday, May 30th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard here for the next hour or so. What's up, buddy? Ah, you know, still flossing my cat. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Start off surreal. I love that, man. There you go. Little, little, well, you know, it's an interesting challenge to floss a cat, actually. I, I'm trying to imagine it. That's a great visual. Yeah. Yeah, cats aren't that, really enthusiastic about floss or, not, or tooth not in care in general. Yeah, that tartar buildup though on mice. That, that but you know, you. you know what's worse than the floss? Mm. Water pick. It's a mistake. Don't do it. <laughs> cats and water picks don't get along. You're crazy. <laughs> All right, let's get started with uh, better know framework. Awesome. So uh, I've taken to doing some, uh, some uh, just out highlighting some codeplex projects. Since Great idea. This is stuff that you might not be uh not know about so um today we've done some great shows on coplex projects too oh a lot of great shows and it yeah. turns out that they're very popular uh libraries and projects that we have highlighted uh this one is commandline.codeplex.com hmm. it's the command line parser library and just what you think it is you know you have a command line app and it, a little tool or utility or something it takes a lot of options parsing those out can you know that can take a few hours to write that code well, why bother when someone's already done it for you? Yeah, that's it. Exactly. So that's that's all I really got to say about it. It has had uh, four ratings, uh, almost five stars, and excellent work. Take a lot of dull work away. Mm-hmm. That's a comment. Had 119 downloads this week. So it was, you know, it's popular among the people that use it. But of course, you know, it's one of those things. That if you need it, you need it. You need it, you need it. So know it, learn it, love it. Commandline.codeplex.com. Richard, we got a we got a comment or something? I did. I grabbed a comment off the website from show 665, which is the one we did with Mark Ortega talking about WinPhone 7. And this is a comment from Mike Simpson, who said, Good show. I think one reason that enterprise usage of WinPhone 7 is low is the due to a lack of out-of-band deployment. My theory about why Microsoft does not offer this is that because non-marketplace deployments would presumably bypass the certification process, they would result in poorer user experiences. From that standpoint, it makes sense for them to initially force all apps to go through their quality control so as to build a culture of good UX. And once that culture is well established, they should be able to relax the controls a bit and offer enterprise deployment. Um, Not a bad thought. Uh, Mike, I think that's certainly part of it. I think the other piece is that the phone itself is not ready for the enterprise. It does not have the same features that WinPhone 6.5 has. Mm. You know, if you really want an uh, insight into this, go to the online documentation for Exchange 2010, because normally Exchange has a very tight interface to all the mobile stuff, and you're able to remote deploy apps, you can lock out a phone, you can control domain access, all kinds of cool things. And all through the documentation, there'll be blocks saying, for WinPhone 7, this doesn't work. You uh-huh. have to do the other some other way, or you know, you can't do that yet, that kind of thing. So uh, I don't know if Mango's going to have it all. They say there's 500 features being added in Mango that's actually going to pick all that up. But until they do... Enterprise broad support for WinPhone 7. I don't think we're going to see a lot of traction there. But when it happens, 
I think it'll explode because Silverlight is a great way to build apps and Silverlight onto the phone rocks. So uh, yeah, it's going to take Enterprise by storm when we're finally there. So I'm going to send you a mug, Mike. Thanks very much for your comment on the website. And you should go to .netrocks.com and take a look at the shows and make some comments. And the listeners and the uh, the guests all participate in those conversations. And hey, maybe we'll ship you a mug. Well, the cooler guests do anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, by the way, uh, our friends at Infusion Development uh, are still looking for some really good people. Uh, they love listeners of .NET Rocks because it tells them that you're interested in what you do, that this isn't just a job to you, that development is a way of life. And they, uh, they're very creative people and uh, have a lot to offer you. So if you're looking to make a career change, they have offices in New York, in London, Toronto, Dubai, and uh, some places in Europe as well in other parts of Europe. So uh, if you're interested in that, I will get you in touch with those people. Just send me email, carl at franklins.net. Awesome. And our guest today is none other than the Michelle LaRue Bustamante. She is Chief Architect of iDesign, uh, Microsoft Regional Director for San Diego, Microsoft MVP for Connected Systems, and a BEA Technical Director. At iDesign, Michelle provides training, mentoring, and high-end architecture consulting services, focusing on web services, scalable and secure architecture design for .NET, interoperability, and globalization architecture. Welcome back, Michelle. Hey, Carla Richard. How are you? Always good to have you on the show. You're a, you're a veteran of .NET Rocks. As I've said before, how are my two favorite gentlemen doing? Oh, you are so sweet. <laughs> well, and we got a lot of time together at TechEd. I, think I we know, were, for a change, right? Yeah. Normally, we sort of was wave at each other on the way by, but we were in the same hotel. I think we had a drink almost every night. Right. Normally, they have us put to work very, very, very much mm -hmm. speaker at the conference. And uh, they sort of relaxed on that a little so that we can actually network. I like that. Yeah, it was good. A lot of fun. Mm -hmm. And a great show. No parties at all, though. Oh, uh, well, I went to a couple. Yeah, fewer, I think, <laughs> is the fair word. It definitely a sort of sense of austerity. Right. Mm. Yeah. No, we had a good time. It was great. And it was a good crowd this time. You know, sometimes uh, oh, I feel not like as tech many of our back. friends are, you know, at the conference. So it's nice to see everyone. Hey, Michelle, how's lockdown going? Your podcast lockdown is going Hunt. well. We are ramping up again for new uh, tapings, actually. And we're going to post another show today. For those that don't know, Michelle and Patrick Hines do a security podcast produced by Pwop Productions called Lockdown, and it's at lockdownpodcast.com. Yeah, we do, and it's a ton of fun, and uh, we've sort of had a slow ramp up, but we're now sort of, uh, we've got a path and a pattern and lots of guests to bring on, lots of people want to be interviewed, so it's awesome. going to be, you know, sort of uh, kicking with some more gas now. Yeah, best of luck to you. Yeah. So, we're talking about identity again. Uh-oh. Yeah. I don't want to be mm. sad about it, but I'm I'm just frustrated. It just seems like it when is identity going to catch on, Michelle? Or has it and we just don't you know? know? Here's the deal. It's catching on. There's no question about that. In fact, it's catching on so much that people really, you know, want it, but they're frustrated because they don't get it or it's too much work to do it. And this is just the nature of the beast in some respects, but it's the nature of the beast because of the protocols, right? I mean, mm -hmm. SOAP protocol, if you remember back in 2000, 
when it first came out, there was no tools, and it was really difficult. And just even getting a, a single call to work, you know, you had to get the namespaces and the XML right, and people still didn't know how to do that. So it was a struggle. And then we got all these tools that made a simple request, you know, easy. But then we jumped into all these standards on top of SOAP that helped us with, well, primarily it started with security, right? How do I send a username and a password so that everybody understands the same way so that we can stop reinventing the wheel on passing usernames and passwords between platforms? Because right. otherwise, you know, everybody's got to roll their own and then nobody agrees, right? And then that moved to certificate security, right? And and securing the actual transfer of the username and password without SSL so that we would have uh, message security, right? Mm-hmm. So you're signing and encrypting on both ends. And then that moved into, you know, some things like secure sessions. So we don't authenticate every call. And now we have a session, and so there's a way to pass the session material. And then we move from that to federation. So security on its own, right, has had a whole series of things happen up until about 2005 when Identity Federation first came to be in a spec form. Mm. And back then, you really fought to get that thing working. And the tools worked amongst themselves, but the interop story had to be kind of flushed out. And now that the interop story is flushed out, more or less, and I think everybody agrees on the protocol, the challenge still remains that people have to understand, how do I design my system to work with this? Mm. What are the moving parts? Where do the certificates go? Um, Which authentication mechanisms do I support? Mm. There's a whole, how do I call from service to service? I mean, there's just, there's still a lot to understand. And if you're not an identity expert and you haven't spent time on that and read all the books, then guess what? That's really hard to approach. Mm -hmm. There also seems to be some simplification going on. The more REST-based approaches, OpenID, OAuth. And those were there first. Were they really? well, okay, I shouldn't say they were there before the spec, and I don't actually know exactly the timeline, I mean, in terms of when OpenID and OAuth started, but I would say, you know, they've been evolving now also for a long time, at least in parallel. Um, it's just that REST maybe wasn't quite as popular, and now REST is really, really moving forward for a lot of reasons, right? Sure. You look at OData. You look at um, ways to get and stream media quickly. I mean, who wants to go through a soap layer for that, right? I yeah. don't. Um, it's complicating our service design on the back end because now it's starting to look like you could do everything with REST. And the only thing that REST is missing from a basic level is we still don't have that whole proxy generation, rapid generation of prototypes tools, right? But when it comes down to building a production system, I don't use those anyway. I would just get the contract and write my own base proxy and then reuse that, right? So so I, I'm not really losing a lot if I'm going to go all in REST. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying I'm now a REST proponent over SOAP because I still usually work with SOAP-based systems in an enterprise. Sure. But I would definitely argue that we're going to see a lot more of that. And the security story around REST is much simplified because... You're talking HTTP headers. You're talking a way to pass, you know, an authorization header that can still have a federated token of sorts. It's just, you know, it's not using asymmetric security. So you might argue that, you know, using the SOAP-based mechanism for federation is more secure at its core. But how secure do you need to be, I guess? And and I don't mean that in the wrong way. I, I, I guess I mean 
you know, username password over SSL has worked for a lot of people for a really, really, right. really long time, right? Sure. So That's always been my point. We want the complexity and the extra security in or, and, and the complexity that comes with that that makes it hard for my development team to maintain this without calling Michelle or somebody else like her. Because that's right. really hard. Right. And I'm not trying to, to talk myself out of work either. Cause, no, no, you know, no. I, I help a lot of people, but... It's a really good point. You really yeah. can't do this without help of an architect who understands you it. You can't. But it also means it. that your average run-of-the-mill application still has minimal security features. Yeah. I mean, I guess you're right. Right, you're going to be again. Username, password over SSL is what we would call good enough, right, to get the job done. And at a minimum, I would argue I still want federation, right? I don't think federation is a waste at all. I think even despite the complexity, we all still really need that because it really sucks to have to build into your app all the different ways to authenticate a user, whether it be Windows or username, password, or certificate, or you're using other, um, you know. Uh, authorization or authentication proxies like a, a site minder or forefront. Um, you know, we want to still be able to support all those things but not have to have our app know about it. My WCF service shouldn't care about forefront, shouldn't care about, you know, the type of, of credential that was used. It should just get a token from somewhere that we trust. And right. I, I still maintain that is absolutely simplifying our life. Do you we think just need the token to be easier to deal with? Do you think the real public e-commerce sites, I'm thinking Amazon, you know, maybe even eBay, uh, you know, places that do a lot of volume, do you think if they were to require identity, uh, you know, the, the identity system that, that their users have certificates or, or identity cards or ID cards or, you know, what, whatever we call them, that it would be a hamper to business? Or is it possible to support them optionally? Well, this is another very good question. If you're building, you know, a new site that you want to be as big as Amazon or whatnot, um, and or you already have a site like Amazon, you, you still have the same challenge in both cases, and that is you want your users to not be deterred from using your service. So how right. do you do that? You give them options. You don't force them to federate. You don't force them to use Facebook or Yahoo or any other, you know, identity provider, right, on the web. You say, look, if you want here, you can put a username and password here. But if you've already got a Facebook or a Yahoo Open ID or mm-hmm. a Google ID or, or Windows Live, then here you go. You, you pick the one you want is what they're saying. Right. So, so what I'm saying is, can, is it possible to, to, implement a federated identity uh, authentication and not require it of your users? And d- if so, does that defeat the point? Well, actually, the way I would do it is I would have my own identity provider. So I would still be, in theory, my website would be pure. It's always getting a token from my identity provider, my, mm-hmm. let's call it a security token service, right? And I don't care if it's REST-based or not, so let's not differentiate between sort of the OAuth path or the, you know, the SOAP mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. The different protocols like SAML2 and and WS Federation on the browser. So it doesn't matter which of those protocols you use. You're still saying, look, my app's just going to get a token, and I'm going to redirect over there to get you authenticated. And if you want to use, you know, Facebook or Google or or Yahoo or Windows Live, or if you want to use your own, you know, just a username and password in our system, well, we'll authenticate you in our system over there still. 
So we're still, you don't see it, but you're still redirected somewhere else to do the authentication. So internally, my app is pure and just receiving a token always from my STS. That's the way I would do that. Now, you could, in theory, use Access Control Service in the cloud for that, right? Because they do provide access to Google, Yahoo, Facebook, mm. and Windows Live built in that mm-hmm. you don't have to write that code, which is really sweet. Okay. Um, but the thing that they don't do is, you know, they don't provide a username password store. So, I mean, they do, but it's not something you would use for a real production system. So that's not its intent, right? Its intent is as a claims transformation engine. So its job is to just be the hub and you redirect to your SDS from there. Okay. You see that on websites where you can, you know, check out using our secure server or sign in, you know, authenticate using Windows Live or whatever, you give the option to right. to the user. Right. Yeah, you do. Or, well, in checkout, it's probably a little different because they're deciding also how you're going to pay. Mm. And so sometimes they might be sending you to PayPal, for example. Mm-hmm. Right? So, um, but yeah, I, I mean, it, it's, it, you know, it's an interesting, I think no matter what, apps should look at federation, and I think it needs to get easier. But the question is, you know, what protocols, Right. Do we use for that? And how do we make it so the customer doesn't have to need to know so right. much about how to implement that, right? The customer being the developer. Yeah, yes. it's still awfully hard to make yeah. any of this stuff work. Yeah, and I think it'll it's easier with the REST stuff, right? Because it's just a simpler token format, a simpler signature format to look at and, and parse, and then you just do it over SSL, so you're not dealing with all this secure, certificate security. Uh, what about access control services? This is part of Azure? Yeah, so Azure App Fabric has access control service, and it, like I said, its job is to be a claims transformation engine and a hub in the cloud for federating with other STS. So where it really shines today is in, if I was building a web app and I wanted to provide a service so that my customers could log into Windows Live or Facebook or Google or or Yahoo. Right. And I wanted to give them all of those options potentially. Then I can do that by just using the access control service. Bam, I'm done. So what am I getting out of that? What I'm getting is a token from access control at my app that says, yes, they authenticated, and here's their name identifier, which is this unique ID for my app only for that user. So every app gets its own name identifier, which means you and I can't collude on the same user because we won't get the same identifier. Interesting. Right. So we can't say you went to that gaming site and also you go to this bank because you wouldn't know. Now, this is part of Azure App Fabric. Do I have to have a cloud app to use it? No. No. I mean, you can use that and have an on-premise app or you can use that and you know, have a, an app in the cloud. But ideally, you know, if, if, you're, if you're going this route, you're probably hosting an app on the Internet one way or another that you want users that come from the community, right? You want the social network right. to be automatically available to your application. Mm-hmm. Not all apps need that, right? If I'm building a business app and you're signing up to use my app as a service and it's a concrete business app, I probably don't want you know, Facebook to know you logged into my app. It's none of their business. Facebook's getting way too much information, right? It's a private app. Right. So I'm going to have my own 
user store with credentials, and I'm probably not going to let you log in with one of those Facebook Windows Live things because I don't want that to be connected because I don't want them to have information about what when you access my app, how often, and so forth. Because in theory, especially with Facebook, they have that information. Right. So it's an interesting issue. Yeah, it is an interesting issue. At the same time, I like the idea that here's a tool that lowers the bar for giving that ability yeah. to produce identity for your application. Mm. Yeah, so what I would do is I would have my app, my STS, I'd build you know, some sort of custom STS that's just, for our users. And then if I wanted to support all the Facebook Googles, I'm not going to write that code. That's a waste of my time. So I'm going to get an access control account. And if you want to log in with one of those, I'm going to send you there to do it. And I'll pay the fee for that if I really want those users because I don't want to write that code. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik Just Decompile. Recent developments in the .NET world have opened up a niche for a free .NET decompiling tool. If you, like so many other developers, have been looking for an alternative .NET decompiler, you'll most certainly welcome the launch of Just Decompile, a powerful tool which promises to stay free forever. Currently in beta, Just Decompile offers effortless .NET decompiling and assembly browsing, innovative code analysis and navigation, side-by-side assembly loading, auto-updating, and better decompiling accuracy. A product by leading .NET vendor Telerik, Just Decompile has an aggressive release schedule and a roadmap based on community feedback. You can visit the Just Decompile feature suggestion forum to let Telerik know what features you'd like to see added to Just Decompile or vote for one suggested by your peers. The official version launch is expected this summer, 2011. Go to telerik.com slash .NET decompiling. And remember to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. And so now I've got a, I'm got a small, I'm only paying for Azure when people use that service, even if it's just running on my site. Right. And it's cheap, right? Those transaction costs are cheap. It's, it's fractions of pennies for a single, you know, authentication request. Right. So I, I don't think that's going to put me over the top. And, and frankly, if it is, it's a good problem to have. That means I have a lot of users and maybe I can afford a developer to write that code. <laughs> Right? Or or I'm making enough money that I don't care for paying that cost. It's no big deal. I'm sorry for sounding like an idiot, but can you define STS for me? Security token service. So okay. let's call it a web app if you're doing browser-based federation, like I'm in a website and I'm redirected, or a service like a WCF service equivalent, whereby its job is to authenticate and issue a token saying you were authenticated and right. provide the claims that identify you and possibly other information about you in that system. Yep. That's the the crux of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So so whether again that's using any number of protocols and that's one of the problems we have, right? There's no one protocol for federation hmm. and there never will be probably. No. There's just preferences, you know. Hmm. So um WS federation and WS trust are the OASIS standards that have come along, you know, and are standardized within Windows Identity Foundation mm. with Microsoft. So if you're building Microsoft apps, you're probably using that by default. But a lot of people use SAML 2, and SAML 2 is not going away anytime soon. So, for example, Active Directory Federation Services V2 supports SAML 2 as well. And, you know, that's that's important because it's a very strong standard. And, mm-hmm. for example... Um, 
folks in the Java community might lean towards that instead of Federation. Um, and folks using earlier versions of .NET that don't support WIF use SAML2 because you can get components that support that. And then you've got OWASP, which is, again, it's got some unique capabilities related to, um, you know, interacting with mobile devices and such, but basically you could use it for REST-based. And that's the idea behind Access Control Service, right? It issues a very simple web token, if you wish, that it's just, you know, you tack it on to the authorization header and your REST-based services can process that and there's no SOAP. So it's it's really easy and you can whip up, you know, your own version of that pretty easily too, right, to support the protocols. And uh, there seems to be a lot of resistance to SOAP these days. It's not a popular transport anymore. Well, that, you know, there's another question. This is probably the not word, not the word. There's another. There's another question that's wrapped up in that, Michelle, which is, you know, SOAP was all about interoperability for right. you know for things that are very complex, and everybody seems to have implemented things over REST, um, and some of which uh, bump up against some of those complex things. But um, uh, is SOAP? Still is the, are the WS standards still necessary and still used for interoperability? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And I think, um, I think one of the things that's interesting to me is if you look at the progression of standards, everybody touted, oh, well, with SOAP, you can do reliable messaging, which is a way to do retries if the mm. connection fails. Um, that's a great thing to have, right? It creates a little overhead in the first call. Mm-hmm. But if you really, really want to make sure that you can overcome hiccups in communication without having to start from the beginning again, mm. um, that can be really useful for sending chunks of data like images and things like that. Um, it's useful. It's important. But you know what? It seems like nobody cares. And right. so they're not using it. And... You know, I would still recommend it in certain environments, but a lot of people are just saying, look, if it fails, I guess I'll deal with it and I'll just retry. And and it's just, it's there for a good reason and there are people using it and I still would say it's a good thing to use if you can apply it, but people just don't care enough. And then transactions is a whole nother discussion, right? Because, you know, doing transactions across services could be a really useful thing and certainly we love it when we're doing MSMQ. Um, but, you know, and, and I'm not saying we don't love it for other things too, but just crossing those service boundaries means you have to have the DTC and you need to have all these moving parts and the IT side. And this is really tough stuff to troubleshoot. It doesn't just work. So it's better to push the transaction down as low as you can. Now, I'm right. not proponent of stored procedures by far, no, and, and having everything down there because there's lots of reasons not to push everything down to the store procedure, but you can certainly keep the transaction behind the service operation layer and then use what came with .NET 2, which is, you know, the lightweight transaction manager, which gives you a transaction with your database as soon as needed, right? As soon as you touch a resource manager, then the transaction kicks in. But it stays behind the service boundary, so you're not crossing tiers with that thing. And therefore, you're not making it so that IT people have to manage more than one box, you know, in theory, for, you know, for the DTC aspects. 
So. I, th- I wonder if this is where the whole soap thing went wrong and the whole WS star thing went wrong, that we got away from security into a bunch of other very complicated problems that just made the whole thing incredibly intimidating. Maybe, but I, I probably would not say that too many people have batted an eye towards the transactions and the reliability side. Right. So I don't think that's the part that makes people feel things are complex. I think where people find things complex is that there's just a lot to think about when you build an enterprise system, which is service-oriented. Because when you build a WCF service, you can't just say, poof, you're a service. You have to know about a lot of things. Right. You know, how should I structure the contracts? What, do, what happens if the contracts need to change? How do I version? Um, this is not even a problem with the technology nor the protocols. This is a problem with it's not easy to build distributed systems. And if you go back to, I guess, some simpler view, which is REST is just, you know, I'll pay, I pass this XML and it gets processed. And I'm just hitting a URL and I'm sending it. And if we want security, we go over SSL. And if we want security, we get SSL. And now we've removed a lot of complexity with message security and all the WCF bindings. Mm. And now the only thing I have to think about is, okay, if I want to federate, then maybe I'm going to receive a header and I need a little tool for that. And, you know, I still have to think about contracts and all those things, but suddenly it just feels less complicated. It feels more grassroots, like, okay, I can just kind of throw this together. Right. When you talk about complexity, I think of, well, .NET developers have WCF, which abstracts a lot of this complexity away from us. Do What do other platform developers have? In other words, are there programmers out there that are manually building WSDL files? I don't think anybody manually builds a WSDL anymore. I think people might massage a WSDL and they might use a tool like uh, XML Spy to to do some of that type of design. And there are tools to build a WSDL if you want to do what they call WSDL or contract first. Mm Mm-hmm. But contract first was touted as the way to be interoperable, and it turns out that was wrong because contract first means you're using all the capabilities of XML schema potentially with this tool. Right. And now all of a sudden parsers on this side and that side, Java this, .NET that, don't understand the same way that XML schema, and they actually don't interop. Whereas if you just create classes and produce your whistle from that, that's the simplest possible way to produce a whistle for for interop. You know, the challenge might be if, you know, one or the other side produces the whistle slightly differently. Like I think there was a time the whistle produced by WCF or something like that did some imports instead of putting it all in one file and Java choked on that sometimes and so we had to rework some things, but I don't think we have that anymore. Crazy stuff, man. It's it's hard. I get that. Yeah. But, you know, again, it, it, everything you do when you build a system is a process. You can use the tools to be productive quickly, and I still agree with that for prototyping, right? Mm-hmm. If you're starting from the beginning, what do you got to do? You got to go grassroots. You got to go to the drawing board and the whiteboard and get your design, get an idea of a vertical slice. You have to go and uh, look at, okay, so I'm going to need this service and that service, and these are more or less the methods I need in there, and you know, this is the data I need to access. Can I use now? You got to start thinking. Okay, so could I just expose this as data services and just call it directly? Right. You know, from the web tier and have the web tier sort of be the business organizer of that data, 
or do I need something more complex that actually has functionality, like, hey, I want you to go generate a PDF or send an email. Well, that's not really data, right? Yeah, there's more to it than that. So you have to design no matter what you're building. Um, And then once you have a design, it becomes a little more clear, what tools should I use to do that? And could I do REST across the board, or do I have a mix? And if I have data services and regular services, should I hide the data services behind the the actual business services so that I can sort of do some business logic around that? And well, and I think this does have more to do with tools. If I've got a great tool that builds out the REST identity, then I'll use that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and the thing is with REST, we, we still don't really have the tools, but REST is sort of looking a lot like how I saw the Java world back when I was doing that. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a bit of a rite of passage, you know. You use the tools to automatically generate REST with, you know, say an MDC project in, in Visual Studio or even WCF, you can produce something. Um, but the truth is, you know, you're probably going to be more raw. You're a, more of a raw developer when you're doing REST. You're sort yeah. of looking more at, okay, these are my URIs and... Bam! I'm just gonna, you know, I'm not gonna use the tools. I'm gonna, I know what I'm doing. I know it's in, what it's doing. intentionally intimate that you you really yeah. have to know the protocol by hand. And it's a rite of passage, right? So right. you don't just jump from being a SOAP service developer and say, "Hey, I'm going to do REST tomorrow." You could, and you could probably figure most of it out. But it's a it's a frame of mind. You have yeah. to set your mind to it. I'm I'm looking at the new stuff that Glenn Block had posted and his team, uh, Howard Durking as well, and you know, looking at that as a way to, you know, maybe more rapidly stream media from Azure as opposed to going through, you know, the traditional service interface. And, you know, again, right tool for the right job, but it's it's just, it's closer to the wire. And when you get closer to the wire, it's faster. And we like that. Well, and, and you own it. And it's easier to diagnose because you wrote it all. So you recognize what's coming through the headers. You know, I yeah. think this is the stumbling block when you get into the WS Star Standards. When it doesn't work, you're so lost. Right. So I'm still at the point where I couldn't say, you know, that soap is dead and rest is going nowhere because that's just silly. Right. Neither of those things is true. I would right. say now soap has a very strong contender in rest. And now developers have some very important things to think about when right. they design. I also and think that, it's making both products better because it's getting down to what really matters. Right. Very true. Very but true. It, it feels like so much of this stuff has been over-designed that it, it, it wasn't implemented and, and improved upon. It's that we have this big bang build and then it's so complex nobody wants to use it. And that happens a lot in this business. Mm-hmm. Well, like, look at the architecture of WCF. I mean, it's a beautiful architecture mm-hmm. with all of the channels and the layers and the fact that you can build layers, you know, on top of channels and, and add functionality in a separate tier. And it's beautiful. But those things add overhead. So you're paying a price for the beauty and for the flexibility and for the extensibility. And sometimes when you just go down to the wire and say, look, I want to receive this at this port and I want to do something now. Although, um, I mean, WCF has made a comeback. It was built on what Azimex was doing for us, and want, we wanted a better abstraction for that. We did. So, I mean, it was well-founded. It just took a while to mature to the point where it was really usable. 
Right, and now they've got, you know, a lot of ways to make it easier in terms of the bindings, but I would argue you still have to understand the binding configurations, right? Now sure. it's easier to prototype with WCF without getting lost. But when we go to go to production, we still have a lot to understand, which is why I never tell people to look at the config and always start at the whiteboard, right? What are you building? What security do you need at each tier in this design? And then... Go to the go to the actual binding and say, okay, how do I flip those knobs? Because if you can send somebody like me an email that says, look, I've got, you know, this type of authentication, and then this service is going to call this service, and I, I want to pass this type of token, how would I configure that? Then it becomes a lot easier to answer that question than, oh my God, where do I begin? Right. And so, it, this is an architectural problem. You do have to have a plan. Yeah, but that's the nature of, you know, really server-side infrastructure in any system. It sure. does have to have an architecture and a plan. I'm also excited to see that Microsoft is starting to implement more of these things, and I'm thinking specifically about SharePoint's claims-based identity. Yeah, they're eating their own dog food now, right? Well, yeah, and, and we know the product will get better from this. Yeah, it's better and harder, right? Mm -hmm. So SharePoint 2010 is much better in a lot of ways that I can't explain because I'm not a SharePoint person, but this is what I hear on the street. And on the identity side, which I have grown to know intimately, um, it's it's really nice that it can do federation, right? I mean, this right. is a very big plus for SharePoint in general. But there's a lot of stuff that's just not well-documented yet, and they're working on that because I've been talking with people at Microsoft about this, and they're awesome. I mean, they really know that we need to document it better um, so that people don't run into some of the potholes that I've seen with my team and also in consulting. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's just what they've done is they've, they've created a capability that we need desperately that's helping people to achieve things like delegated... Um, Authentication, it now allows a SharePoint site to have, uh, you know, authentication in multiple modes mm -hmm. without having to deal with, you know, a whole bunch of customizations at the site because you just redirect to the SDS, let it do its thing. Like we have a product um, from Bitku, right, that, that plugs into SharePoint. So we can do authentication now against any directory you want. And it's just an STS that we have that you redirect to from SharePoint. Boom, you said Bitku, B-I-T-K-O-O? B-I-T-K-O-O, yeah. What's that? And so, so, you know, we've gone through and we still go through because every customer is different. Some of the pains of, you know, this new claims based authentication mode in SharePoint because it's really, it's really, you know, we're helping customers understand that because the thing is, is they want our product and they want to do the, the federation with RSTS because we provide central policy governance and audit trails and things like that. When you say we, you're talking about Bitku? Talking about Bitku, yeah. Um, but the problem is, Customers want that, but they still don't have staff in some cases that understand claims-based yet. Sure. Which means it's our job to educate them on that so that they can actually be successful with our product. What and is your product exactly? I'm just sorry for the dumb I'm questions, sorry, but I Keystone. don't... Keystone. We have a product called Keystone Server, and we have a product called Keystone uh, for SharePoint 2010. And what Keystone Server is the heart of everything we do, it's, it's basically... a Authentication and authorization management, right, for any application. So imagine managing across hundreds of apps in an organization like Disney, um, whereby you know what 
a particular user can do across all the apps because you can look at their a report on that user and when they've authenticated and what they, you know, what claims they got and mm. all that kind of stuff. And you can manage the policy for the claims in the central place. So okay. it's very useful for large enterprise, right? And um, folks that have a mix of SharePoint and other types of apps now can use that system through our STS. We have a, a product called Keystone STS that sits in front of the server, the policy server. And so that's, does that answer the question? Sorry. Yeah. So yeah. basically, I guess the point about the SharePoint side, though, is that, you know, there's a lot of things with Federation and SharePoint you have to know to set that up. And most of the docs on the web only talk about ADFS, first of all, so there's there's that. Right. Um, and ADFS has some special things it does that, you know, work with Windows credentials only. So if you want to go outside of that, you know, I've I've had even consulting customers that are just struggling with, I have a custom SPS, I need to make it work with SharePoint. And it, it just it's just not well documented, that's all. People just, they don't understand it yet. So it can do what you want it to do, but you need the, the documentation is making it hard to understand. Well, the documentation is sparse, and frankly, even if it's written, unless somebody can write something that just says, "Look, hey, you're a newbie, start here," right? right. And it can articulate. Here's how you set up Federation with an STS. Here's every setting that applies to STS. Here's all the places inside SharePoint that change when you're doing claims-based. Perfect example, things like search, right? The search crawler can only work with a Windows credential. So when you set up SharePoint and you want to have search crawler enabled across your sites, you need to either create a new zone, you know, to go through for that, and that requires a certain set of configurations, or you need to enable both Windows and claims-based and do some funny things to make it so that the Windows credential is only the search credential and you can never see that to log in. So um, to get to the answer that I just said, you know, took literally weeks of, of pulling out of Microsoft people, well, so what is the recommended way? Because it's just not documented in one place. And, you know, perhaps, you know, pulling that out of people when you're not a particularly a SharePoint expert takes longer too, Right. Well, and, right. and what you said was very challenging. What is the recommended way right. implies, you know, right or wrong as right. opposed to, you know, what are the possible ways? And well, I'll assess right or wrong myself. Right. Or, or another good example is uh, if you uh, log in with Federation from SharePoint, whether it's ADFS or any other SDS, and you hit the back button all the way to the login page, right. what happens? Endless loop. And it can't, you can't stop it unless you write code in your STS to pick up the endless loop and see that you've been hit like six times in a row from the same IP. From the same guy <laughs> so, and just say, so stop. So like ADFS <laughs> has that, you know, after six times, it shows a little message saying, you know, you've just come here six times, something's wrong, but it doesn't help you, right? And it's probably because there's something going on in the Federation story with the SharePoint site that just isn't kind of quite working when you hit the back button, Right. Yeah. So it's a known issue, and and but it's just when you see that you're like, okay, I must have done something wrong because I'm not using ADFS and I'm using a custom STS, and you go through these hurdles, and you realize you're not doing anything wrong because it's just a side effect, right? So it's been interesting times going through that. So SharePoint is just added a whole new market of people that need my help, basically, right? <laughs> <laughs> Send awesome. flowers to the SharePoint team, <laughs> right? And 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 like I said, you know, 
because we have a product built on SharePoint, we end up spending a lot of time helping people. And we've had to also go through the learning curve to be able to help people, right? right. Because every situation reels a new feature that we need to deal with. So it's just a big animal. But SharePoint, nonetheless, everybody loves it, right? I mean, yeah. for what right. it does, it's definitely better in 2010. So people love it. I mean, so this is a good, good place to be. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only $6.95. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of Happy.net Rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. I'm also wondering if cloud is really going to drive more claims-based authentication because you get into the situation where you have an app in the cloud that's dependent on some actor directory information that's internal. And you need to have a way for that to communicate out to the cloud and back again that's secure. Right. Well, actually, that's a whole another discussion, right? Remember, I did a tech ed session on security architecture in the cloud, so we should put a link up for that so people can replay it if they want. I think they taped it. Sure. Um, Great. Yeah, but that was a fun, fun talk to do because, you know, it, it really kind of takes you down the flow of, okay, I have to have a design for my system first, agreed? I have to know what assets am I willing to put in the cloud do I have any legal reasons I cannot put this data in the cloud or um, or that data in the cloud because of, you know, maybe some sort of compliance issues with the government or whatnot, right? Right. Um, or this is too high risk. No, no, this data has to stay here. This is how we feel comfortable, right? So once you've established that, then you've got an architecture. So, okay, if this data stays behind the firewall, then I need a way to get at that. There's a service bus for you, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now I've got a service in the service bus, and that gives me my DMZ. And then I've got, okay, so this other data now, is it going to be SQL Azure or Azure Tables and, and Blobs? So Andrew Brest wrote a nice white paper on that. Um, I'm going to make that available in my link for my session, so I'll, I'll give that to you guys too. But it talks about sort of the, the relational, non-relational database approach and, and sort of help you evaluate that. Um, there's an interesting cost factor. If you look at SQL Azure as a relational data in the cloud, you know, a gigabyte is about $9.99 yep. mm-hmm. per month. And so if you look at table storage for the non-relational, it's about $0.99 cents a month for the same amount of data. Now, you pay the price of not having the relational, so it depends what kind of you know, querying and things you need to do on that data. Right. And performance factor could be an impact, too. So something to think about. But you have to decide, where's the data going to go? Am I using media? Probably it's blob storage, right? Am I using queues for anything? Ah, beware of that, right? Because if you've got a worker process constantly pulling a queue, you're getting some transaction fees there. So you've got to look at that too. Um, so you've got to design first, and then you've got to look at costs of those designs, right? So you've got to do your capacity planning. Yep. And then finally, you're ready to say, how do I secure all that stuff? So, you know, my talk sort of picked up at that and, and talked about each of the areas of Azure, what the security facets were, you know, like, um, you know, like, like SQL Azure, you know, how should you manage creating the, the users and, you know, which account has access to sort of produce users and which account should we use for 
um, managing running scripts and producing the tables and database structure and so forth, right? Um, and then, of course, the accounts that we use to call the database from each service and that kind of thing. Um, and then you go to table storage and you talk about the key management aspects and encryption and, and just these features that we need for protecting configuration, right? And and it just kind of showed where all the, the security aspects lie. So when you talk about, you know, going to the cloud, helping with identity, the final thing that, you know, we went through in that session is the fact that certainly you're going to gain some security by not having, by federating in the sense that now, you know, the user accounts are not directly sent. You have to send a token that's valid and that was from an authentication step in order to get to my services and my apps in the cloud. Right. So that is a sort of layer of abstraction, which adds a layer of security in mm. itself. Right. And even Paula said that, I think, on one of our lockdown podcasts, you know, the fact that Identity Federation can add to, you know, how secure your offering is in the cloud. Right. So we like it. We like it for that. Um, but, of course, that also means we need security token services to be available to us in the cloud. So, Richard, to your point, from Access Control Service, I right. could get to Google and all the social IDPs, identity providers, but I can also federate with an ADFS on-premise if I expose it from on-premise. Well, and this is what's happening now. I'm finding a lot more ADFS is being stood up from an infrastructure perspective because we need to do authentication against our cloud-based applications. Office 365 requires it. Yeah. Like So this is, you know, you don't even want to build an app. You want to use Microsoft's mail product. You need ADFS running. So right. this right. is happening more and more. Well, and you can join a domain now, at least there's a, a CTP feature out there for Azure, Windows Azure, where you can join the, the VM to a dom domain mm. and therefore yeah. redirect and authenticate to your ADFS that way. Of course, with WCF services, that's not as much of an issue because you're actually authenticating from your box, which is probably already on the domain. Yeah, the ADFS level, and this is probably a little off topic, but from an, it's very much a more of an IT issue that... Now I have a machine running as a VM in Azure, and it's just as if it was in my own data center. It is authenticated the same way. It has access to AD. It's almost transparent how well that works. Yep, exactly. Yeah. No, it's fun stuff. I mean, it's all very interesting. And I would argue this is no more complex doing in the cloud than it is on-premise. It really isn't. I mean, securing your aspects in the cloud is not hard once you know where do I want to put stuff in the cloud, right? The, I think the big difference here is I can get away with not doing it internally, and I cannot once I involve the cloud. The big thing that happens when you have to stand up ADFS and start communicating with that is you better have your Active Directory in good shape and know what your state of your claims and so forth are. It's just not optional. If you're going to work in the cloud, this stuff has to work right. In all cloud offerings or just Azure? Just, just this particular scenario. Oh, you mean if you want to expose your AD users to the cloud, then right. you have to be yeah. on top of that design. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it, well, you also have to have the proxy set up, right, so that you have the real AD behind the DMZ, right? The domain right. is behind the DMZ and all that good stuff. Yeah, you do You need do need to properly secure it. But what I'm finding right. is uh, working with companies on these kinds of problems, we're kicking crud off of 10-year-old mistakes in AD. 
Ah, okay. okay. Right? It, it's just making us think through the problem and going, oh, hey, you know, all those extra domains we built in that forest, that was a stupid thing to do. Let's clean that up. Right. Right. Well, assuming people know to do that, though, right? How would they know to do that unless mm. they call you, Richard? Well, or listen be- to the show. Yeah, right. That's a whole other topic, but that absolutely an issue. And I think it's should just, we interview you on on lockdown and talk about that? Maybe we should. Yeah, that's a good okay. idea. <laughs> Keep it in the family. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Little, little role reversal there. I'm I'm up for that. But okay, it, it is interesting to me that that what that process is doing is adding education to folks about identity. They are thinking about this stuff for the you know AD is one of those things you ignore until it breaks. And I yeah, think, I could, in general, I, I feel like security is like that for developers. Well, isn't it what they say? Security is the the most important thing with the least amount of attention until something goes wrong. Right. right. And, and then, then it's, it's the most important thing with the most important, you know, the highest right. attention. I always and say that's that... And that's because people are busy doing development on the actual product and managing that and the customer service around that and all of those things that have to happen. And that's why security should be an appliance or should be you know, something you can outsource, if you will, or delegate and have it just. And it's not just that people are busy. I think, you know, adding layers of stuff that can make it not work for the developer is always frustrating for the developer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, not not to be like product uh, oriented here, but but really what we do is we provide all the tools to work with our SCS at BitCo. Yeah. And so we have to do that because we need to make it as easy as possible. And even though we do that, there are still things that customers need to understand about Federation and the moving parts and what's going on under the hood because they need to know how to troubleshoot if they miss something in the setup like a certificate. So we end up helping with that. But um, we've made it as easy as possible in terms of the number of lines of code down to like literally one or two lines to log in from a client calling a service and then having that delegate to a service. but. It's still hard because people don't like magic too much, right? Like, but right. what just happened? I got it. Here's the slogan for your company, Bitku. Bitku, it's Michelle in a box. <laughs> oh, well, you flatter me, but there's a whole team behind that. Okay, good enough. But I'm blushing. Thank you. Well, speaking of blushing, uh, it's time for a joke. Oh, no. You okay, got one? so who who wants to blush? That's the question. <laughs> <laughs> We have to decide who gets to blush. No, no, you, I can't make you guys blush. I can only make you laugh, I think, right? Well, it's blushing is hard to do on the radio. Yeah. Okay, I have a couple of good ones for you. All right, cool. Okay, so this beautiful, beautiful woman one day, she walks into the doctor's office, right? A little bit of a doctor joke with, in my husband's honor. Right, there and you go. And the doctor is just completely bowled over at how stunningly awesome she is. Like, she's just gorgeous, right? So all of his professionalism goes out the window, and he says, Take your pants off. And he starts rubbing her thighs. Do you know what I'm doing, asked the doctor. Yeah, checking for abnormalities, she replies. So he tells her to take off her shirt and her bra, and she takes them off, and the doctor begins to rub her breasts. And he asks, do you know what I'm doing now? And she says, yes, checking for cancer. Hmm. And finally, he tells her to take off her panties. And he lays on her on the table, and he, you know, takes gets on top of her, starts having sex with her, and he says, do you know what I'm doing now? And she says, yeah, getting herpes. That's why I'm here. (laughs) 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 So, uh, ba-dum-bum. That's awesome. 
That oh, must have been man. good. I made you laugh. Here's one my dad. I have to tell this one in my dad's honor because he was here for a week just now for my son's third birthday. Happy um, birthday. Happy, happy birthday, Juan Pablo. Happy birthday, Juan Pablo. That's right. He's three and he's three and a half feet. Awesome. Wow. Scary. Oh, boy. Yeah. So anyway, um, so, so Johnny, little Johnny's in his classroom and the teacher is giving a lesson and she's doing some sort of counting lesson and she says, okay, kids, so there's 10 birds on a fence and, you know, the farmer shoots one. How many are left? And Johnny puts his hand up really high. She says, Johnny, what do you have the answer? And he said, none. And she said, well, why do you say that? And he says, well, of course, the rest would fly away. He says, you know, Johnny, I like the way you think, but actually the correct answer is nine because we're doing a counting lesson right now. So one is gone, then there's nine left. Mm -hmm. And he said, teacher, I have a question. And she said, okay, Johnny, go ahead. And he said, well, there's three women on a bench sucking a popsicle. One of them is sucking, one of them's licking, and one of them's biting. Which one's married? (laughs) And the teacher says, Oh, boy, this is not going well, and I don't really know how to answer, so I guess I'll just have to pick one. So she says, "Um, the one that's biting? And he says, you know, I like the way you think, but actually it's the one with the the wedding ring. (laughs) (laughs) So there's your jokes of the day. It has to be done. (laughs) Oh, it's great to have you on the show always fun talking with you okay and uh we'll catch up with you where are we catching up with you next i don't know i'm not going to ndc so i guess uh boy are you going wow. to dev teach no 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 probably DevCon in the fall okay DevCon in the fall all right. in the fall we'll see you there we'll talk before then all right and dear Bye. listener we will talk to you next time on dotnet rocks .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a